and it depicted our Lord with outstretched hands in a posture of invitation. Now, however, this statue was badly damaged, and master sculptors worked for months on end seeking to repair the damage. But while they were successful in part, they discovered that they couldn't find enough fragments in the rubble to reconstruct the hands of the statue. Now that statue, partially restored, stands without hands. And on the pedestal, they've written a a little inscription. The inscription says, Christ has no hands but ours. As we continue our thematic series, Take My Life, we come upon a similar sentiment this morning. As we come to that line of the hymn which says, Take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love. It is indeed in one sense true that Christ has no hands on earth except our hands. It is our feeble and frail hands which at the impulse of his love are to be serving, serving in the context of the church of God. Now, many passages of Scripture emphasize this important fact. But we turn this morning to Romans chapter 12, and we focus especially on verses 3 to 8 of that chapter. These are verses which focus on my service, on your service, on supremely the church's service as a collective people of God. At a key juncture in Israel's history, a true servant of God, Joshua, said this, if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. And Joshua was addressing that not to some pagan people, but to the people of God. And so it is that in his day and in ours, the people of God always have a choice to make about whom we will serve. It is not a given that even although we are called the Lord's people, that we will serve the Lord. And the great thing is that in this passage before us, in chapter 12 of Romans, in verses 3 to 8, Paul encourages us as a people to serve the Lord, and he gives us incentive to do so. He gives us instruction about how to do so specifically. And I want to suggest to you that he mentions three things, fundamental things, which if we grasp these, we will not only choose to serve the Lord, but we will serve him more effectively. Now, here's the first thing we need to understand. Service begins with the mind. Service begins with the mind. That may seem a strange thing to say, but is it not intriguing that in verse 3, Paul does not begin with the hands, he begins with the head. Paul knew something significant, you see. 
that our hands will never be employed in the service of others until our heads are in good service order. And you see, there is a kind of thinking which acts rather like one of those limb-numbing injections that the doctor puts in your arm. And quickly you start to feel the limbs numbing out. There is a kind of thinking too, which once it gets into the bloodstream, begins to paralyze arms and hands that would otherwise be used for service. Paul homes in on this thinking in verse 3. And he says how not to think. Do not think of yourself more highly than you ought. The New Living Translation paraphrases it well. Don't think you are better than you really are. My wife and I enjoy watching the TV show MasterChef. It's ironic, really, because I can't cook for toffee. But I enjoy watching other people cook. And one of the amusing things is how, in the first round, so many of these contestants, they ask them, how do you think you'll get on in the show? And so many of them say, I'm the culinary talent that Britain has missed. I'm the next Jamie Oliver, Gordon Ramsay. And almost invariably, they turn out to be the ones who burn the bacon, who serve up the food poison, overestimating, you know, their abilities. And yet the funny thing is, Paul says, actually, there can be a kind of high thinking even within the orbit of the church. There's a high thinking that Paul seeks to drag down here. It seems that maybe there were some within the church in Rome who thought of themselves as being a cut above the rest. Some who imagined themselves as being those with the treasured talents. You know, the sort of folk who are the hub around which the church spins. The folk that would wonder what the church would ever do without them. And Paul says, we should not think of ourselves more highly than we ought in the body of Christ. We should not overestimate ourselves and thereby underestimate and undermine the rest of the church body. Because you see, that is what happens when there are some within the fellowship who think of themselves or others who think of them as being a cut above the rest. What you end up with is a church of a few multi-talented individuals with a whole multitude of spectators just watching on. And Paul says we must avoid this kind of thing. I was chatting to someone recently about a church that's been in vacancy for some time, getting the report of how the church was doing. And I was presuming that being without a pastor, it would be a bad thing. Usually it is if it's over a prolonged period. But they said, actually, we're just enjoying the chance to serve. Because our pastor used to do all the work, and therefore we could do none of the work. Where did we get this notion, this false, unbiblical idea, that one man or just a select few can somehow do all of the ministry in the church? <coughs> one guy apparently has all the gifts. He can do the public services, and only he can lead them. Only he has the Ability to chair all the meetings. Only he can run the youth group. Only he can 
have the dexterity apparently in his hands to unlock the church doors in the morning. And you go into his church. It's an interesting phrase that, isn't it? His church. And it's a one-man band. Sometimes, literally, he's up the front, you know, leading the music too. God help you if you're in his church and you're one of the minions without any gifts because he's got them all. Paul says there's a kind of high thinking that, that all of us should be aware of in the church. It will stifle service in the church. Now, Paul progresses from this and he sort of pivots and he points us now to a better way of thinking, not thinking of ourselves too highly. Look at what he says at the end of verse 3, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. And notice here that Paul does not swing to an opposite and equally harmful extreme. See, there are two ways that you can compromise your service in your brain. The first way is to think you're better than everybody else. In that case, you will neither encourage their service, nor will you probably serve them anyway, because you're so full of yourself. But the opposite problem is is equally difficult, isn't it? The kind of person who so underestimates themselves that they do nothing within the fellowship of the church. And this is what I think Paul is addressing here when he says, think of yourself not with denigrating judgment, but with sober judgment. What an apt word Paul chooses, to be sober in in our estimations of ourselves. I mean, you think of the person who is the opposite of sober. It's maybe not a nice thing to think about, but uh, maybe you have met them in the hospital, you've been treating them late at night and they come in totally drunk. Maybe you've seen on the television or the Christmas party that you go to once a year and you don't want to go to. And you find people who are drunk and one of the things, well, there's two things that happen with their self-perception. Some people get overestimated views of how great they are. And you've got the guy on the karaoke machine who thinks he could be the fifth member of Il Devo. And he's so tuneless, actually, that you wouldn't let him loose at your child's birthday party. He's got overinflated views. But then there's the other kind of reaction, isn't there? There's the person who, in their drunken stupor, gets down on themselves, starts sobbing over their life, beating themselves up. How awful they are at everything, how messed up their life is. They have a ludicrously low view of themselves. And Paul is saying here that that, in fact, can be the reality in a Christian's life. There are Christians like that. God bless them. The subject of service comes up, and here's what they say. I've got nothing to contribute. Oh, there's nothing I could give. There's nothing I could do. It usually is accompanied by a sort of downward shake of the head. Uh, There's nothing I could do. And oh, he or she, look at how wonderfully gifted they are. Aren't they tremendous, the things they do in the church? Oh, it used to be that I served and I did this and I did that and I did the next thing, but not now. I've got nothing to give. And I think Paul would say to you very lovingly this morning that you need to sober up. You actually need to sober up in your thinking. 
Because that is simply not true that you have nothing to give. Every Christian has at least a gift. Every Christian has the good news of Christ. And every Christian is called to serve in the context of the church. We need to sober up. We need to be realistic about what we can do. Uh, Dick Lucas, who was the pastor of St. Helens Church in London for over 30 years, I was listening to him recently and he was saying that there was a man in his church who was a caretaker for over 30 years. He said he was the most marvelous uh, caretaker that we had in some respects because this man had one gift and his one gift was smiling at people and shaking their hands when they came in the door. He was absolutely fantastic at it. It was just a, it was just a God-given gift. And he said so many people, he believed, stayed at his church because they were so warmly welcomed by this man on the first occasion they arrived. You know, we've all got a gift. We've all got something we can give. None of us are the be-all and end-all, but we all have something. So we need to get this fixed in our minds. That's the first thing Paul says. Service begins with the mind, having a, a realistic perception. But then the second thing Paul goes on to say is that service is expressed in the body. Service is expressed in the body, which here represents the church of Christ. You see that image in verse 4. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. So Paul here, he's making a comparison. And he's saying, think about the human body. He says the body is like the church. There are certain characteristics of the human body that are similar to what the church is like. You say, how is the human body like the church? Well, in at least two respects. First of all, the human body is a unity. And so also the church is a unity. Just think about the fact that Paul here refers twice to one body. One body. Why does Paul point that out? It seems so obvious, doesn't it? When we think about the human body, we very rarely ponder this aspect that we've only got one. We don't have two or three bodies. And all of you are here this morning. You're not at home. You can only be in one place at one time. If your legs go for a walk, the rest of your body has to go too. It would be nice, wouldn't it, if you could send half of the body down the shops and stay at home and relax. Anyway, we can't because as Paul puts it, the members of the body belong together. There is this indissoluble union and unity in the body of Christ. And we understand, of course, that Paul is not speaking here physically. You know, we're not physically attached together. The joining is not between bones and blood and sinew. We are united together in and through the person of Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, Christ is pictured as the head of the church, which is his body. And in this sense, if we belong to Christ, we necessarily belong to each other. You cannot say this morning, 
I belong to Jesus, without at the same time saying, and I belong to the church, for the church is his body. He is the head of the church. You know, some of us have to come on a bit of a journey in our thinking because we live in a very individualistic culture where we all just do our own thing, and that's utterly acceptable. But we have to understand that the biblical view is that while our faith is personal, it is not individual. Individual, I mean, in the sense of of not involving anyone else around us. It is not individual. It is personal, but it is worked out in the context of the church body. The body is meant to be found together. I wonder whether we are expressing that reality in our lives. It is a reality. It is true in God's sight that we're united together. But are each of us expressing that unity? That belonging. The person that sits home on a Sunday morning most weeks, not because of health reasons, and they sit watching Christian TV and they think that that passes for church, is not expressing the unity of the body. It's simply not. Or maybe we're just church attenders, church attenders and or maybe we're even members of the church, but on paper. And it's not really clear to anyone else that we belong to this church, that we're really invested as part of it. I'm reminded of the story of three pastors who were talking one day, bemoaning the infestation of rats in their churches. I got so mad, one pastor said, I took out a shotgun and fired some holes in the in the walls, I missed the rats completely. The second one said, well, I tried trapping them alive, took them away 50 miles in my car, dropped them off. When I got back to the church, they'd already beaten me back. The third pastor said, I I have actually had no problems at all with them. I got rid of them completely. And the two other amazed pastors said, how did you do it? He said, I simply baptized them and brought them into membership. (laughs) And I never saw them again. You know, you laugh at that, but the reason you laugh is because it's often true. It's often true. Do we really express the unity of the body? That's fundamental to service. You're not going to serve the church unless you really belong to this church or whatever church you're from. But secondly, this picture is that because it reminds us that the body is a unity in diversity. The church possesses diversity. There is one body, but Paul says on a couple of occasions, it has many members. It has many parts to it. We think of the human body, don't we? Isn't it amazing, all the component parts? You medical people will know much more about this than me, but isn't it wonderful? All the different parts and all the different functions that they perform, from your head to your forehead to your jaw to your chin, your cheek, Uh, your arm, your elbow, your wrist, your hand, your finger, your thumb, you know, the the spine and the the chest and the abdomen and the rib cage and the hip and the leg and the thigh and the knee and the ankle and the foot and the toes. And then you think of the heart and the liver and the kidneys and the lungs and the intestines and the pancreas and the esophagus 
and the spleen and the stomach, thyroid, veins. And you've all got, well, pretty much all of you anyway, eyes, ears, mouth, nose, teeth, tongue, lips. It's amazing, isn't it? All the different parts. They all do different, distinct functions. They have all distinct capabilities. And so it is in the church too. We are one body in Christ. But you know, we have many different parts. We have many different facets, many different gifts. Men, women, children. Elders, deacons, other members of the church. Welcomers, like that man. Welcomers, money counters. Those who are hospitable those who are technological, those who are behind the scenes, others who are up the front. There are great organizers in this church, great administrators. There are wonderful sympathizers and pastoral caterers and and comforters. There are those that have a, a specific prayer ministry that's so pervasive. There are leaders and followers. There are preachers and there are listeners. You know, we're not all the same. But we all belong together. One body. This is what Paul is saying. Yet we have many parts. And God has made it so. And therefore we serve in the context of a local church. Not simply because we are united together in Christ. Though that is a reason. But also because it is in being together in our multifaceted composition. That we truly bless one another that you bring your gifts to bless me, and I bring whatever my distinctive contribution is to bless and encourage you. That's the wonderful thing, says Paul, about the body. You know, one of the the ministries I've been very blessed to be involved in here at the chapel has been the student ministry. And I've really seen this in the student ministry. You've probably seen this in some of the things you're involved in too, but, you know, we have such a variety of people. There's uh, David. I'll embarrass David. He is a wonderful administrator with an attention to detail. We have the likes of John and Dorothy, who are just wonderful pastorally, very hospitable, tremendous role they've had in that. There's others who, who are excellent leading Bible studies. You know, I'm not a good Bible study leader. A lot of them are far better than me at leading the Bible studies. There are one-to-one people There are some folks who are just brilliant at chatting to people and making them feel welcome. There are many who can do the business in the kitchen, which is very important in student ministry particularly. Our strength and the strength of every church and every church ministry is in this fact that we are not all the same. We are united in Christ. We are united in purpose, but we are diverse in our gifts. And so I would encourage you that the context of serving Christ must be in the church. That is how we bless each other best. So service is expressed in the body. Service begins with the mind. But thirdly, Paul brings a third principle to our attention, and it's this. Service is determined by the gifts. Service is determined by or according to our gifts. It's almost as if, at this point, Paul assumes that we will be on board with him. He assumes by this point that that we're saying, yes, Paul, 
I recognize that as a Christian, I have a responsibility and a call to serve. Yes, Paul, I want to have that right balanced mindset that's realistic. Yes, Paul, I want to serve alongside my brothers and sisters in this unified diversity. But it's almost as if he assumes also at this point that some of us have a practical question. And the practical question is this. How? And where? I mean, how specifically do I put this service into practice? To use the body analogy, which part am I in the body? What is the service that God is calling me to specifically in the church? Many people fall short at this point. And so anticipating this, Paul gives us a very straightforward answer to the question. And where should I serve? And what Paul says is this, the kind of service you do should normally be determined by the gifts you have. The kind of service you do should typically be determined by the gifts you have. Isn't that what Paul is saying? Look for yourself in verses 6 to 8. If a man's gift is prophesying, what is he to do? Let him use it in proportion to his faith. If a man's gift is serving, if someone has a particular deaconing gift, what does Paul say? That he should sit on his hands? No, says Paul, let him use it. Let him serve. If it is teaching, likewise, let him teach. If encouraging, let him encourage. If it's a special gift of generosity in contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it's leadership, let him govern diligently. And if it is showing mercy, says Paul, let him do it cheerfully. Friends, I don't think the principle could be any clearer than it is. If a Christian has a gift then in normal circumstances, let them use it. That's the principle. Let them use it. You know, if you give someone a gift for their birthday or their Christmas, you expect them to use it. Unless it's an ornament or something, but you still expect them to put it up in a prominent place. And God does not give his children gifts that he expects them to remain unopened and unused. God doesn't waste the gifts that he gives. I think Ed Clowney is uh, right in his book, Call to the Ministry, when he says, every gift you have received then is a calling of the Spirit. Every gift you have received is a calling of the Spirit. You don't have to wait for some misty-eyed vision to tell you what to do. You need to determine the gifts that God has given you. And then you need to look for opportunities to put those gifts to work. And in one sense, the gift is the call. The gift is the call. It's a pretty clear principle, I think, Paul lays out here. And we would do well. It would remove a lot of confusion that people sometimes had if we take this as our point of departure. But I do imagine at this point that maybe a number of practical questions might arise. Because while the principle is clear, sometimes applying this is not so clear. It's more muddy. And there are three questions I imagine you might have at this point. The first question is this. What if I haven't yet discerned my gift? What if I haven't yet discerned my gift? 
If the gift determines where I should serve, what do I do if I don't know how I'm gifted? Well, my suggestion would be this, very simple. Serve anyway. Serve anyway in whatever context and whatever opportunity you can find. Because you see, most people discern their gifts not through surveys, but through serving. There were many areas of service that I tried my hand at when I was really trying to discern areas of gifting. And I'll be honest with you, I found more areas I wasn't gifted at than I was gifted at. Thankfully, no one was harmed in the process. But the truth was, it was through that process that particularly through the feedback of others, I could discern areas that just were not my thing and other areas where God had given me a stewardship, a small stewardship to develop. And so I would just encourage you, if you're just starting out and you don't know what to do or how you're gifted, get involved. Start to serve and ask other people, where do you see my gifting? A second question might be this. What if I know my gift, but I can't find much opportunity to use my gift? That's a different kind of problem, isn't it? You know what your gift is. You know you should serve, therefore, in that way. But there doesn't seem much opportunity. It's a particular problem, I think, that can come about in a large church where potentially there are a queue of people serving in the area of my strength. What do I do? Well, I think your first port of call, uh, I would suggest to you, is first of all, check out that your area is as well uh, resourced as you think it is. Because very often, maybe you say, I've got the gift of teaching, but there seems to be a few guys up in the pulpit. We have many opportunities for teaching in the church. We've got many courses. There could be opportunities you don't even realize. But beyond that, let me suggest to you, you might want to ask, what other gifts do I have? Because you know, the tremendous thing is that God gives every Christian a gift, but he gives many Christians more than a single gift. And so it may well be that for this season in your life, God is challenging you to exercise some of your other gifts in the opportunities that are there. A couple leave a small town in England. They are the two chief musicians in the little village church. And then they come to Edinburgh and discover that there are musicians by the score in a large church. So what do they do? They diversify. And the gentleman also has a gift in working with children. So he plugs into the children's ministry. And his wife is no mean accountant. And so she starts to do the sums and helps with the finances of the church. That is sometimes how it works. Of course, it may be in some rare cases that people need to move church to better utilize their gifts. I mean, whatever way you look at it, it does seem rather unfair for one body of believers to have 25 big toes when the church down the road doesn't have one. And then one final question, maybe you're asking this. What if I'm serving in an area which I realize is not my gift? If I'm meant to be serving according to gift, what if I'm serving when I'm not really gifted? I think I'd want to be careful in answering that question because sometimes I know it is a case of needs must, especially in a smaller fellowship 
It can be all hands to the pump, and the simple fact might be that if you're not serving in a particular area, the work will fold. And it may be an important gospel opportunity. But these really are exceptions, I think, to the rule. And the general principle would be that square pegs should not be put in round holes. And so if you are a square peg, you should extract yourself and you should put yourself in a square slot. I I can think of one church who several years ago did one of these spiritual gift analysis analyses, and it was a church-wide spiritual gift survey. Every member had to do it. And one of the things that a few members discovered was that they were not serving in the areas of their gifts. So they went to the leadership at the end of the course, and they said, you got us into this, so you tell us what to do. And the leadership took the brave decision of saying to every member, over the course of the next year, we want to move every member who's not in an area of their gifting out of that and plug them back in where they will actually be effective. That may be something that you need to prayerfully think about, not to rush into, but to think about over the next course of time. You know, if you have any queries at all about serving in the context of this church, I would encourage you this morning to speak to one of the leaders in this church. It is our responsibility to make sure that you are finding opportunities to use the gifts that God has given you. We also have uh, what we call a connect ministry. Lorna Cameron, she's sitting up the back this morning with the blonde hair, black jacket. You can speak to her after the service. She is involved in the connect ministry, trying to fit people into areas where they can be effective. And maybe if Lorna's got a bit of time, she could be down the front if you want to chat to her briefly. At the beginning, we thought of the statue of the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, when Jesus was on earth, he really gave us the example of how to serve, didn't he? We recall that famous incident where the king of kings, endowed with gifts beyond our imagining, got down on his knees, put a towel around his waist, and began to wipe and wash his disciples' feet. Can you imagine that? And this servant became the suffering servant. This servant became the sin-bearing substitute. He went to a cross, and he died there for our sins. He suffered in his soul in order to serve us, in order to save us. Today, he calls us, afresh as a church, to follow his example. Service begins with our minds. It is expressed in our body, in the church body, It is determined by our gifts. And today, we potentially possess the hands of Jesus in the world. But will we pray, take my hands and let them move at the impulse of thy love? We're going to sing a hymn together as we ponder that and as we come to approach the Lord's table.